I'm Professor Laura Empson. And I'm David Morley. And welcome back to Leading Professional People. In this series, we bring together cutting-edge theory and first-hand experience to offer in-depth insights into the unique challenges of leading professional people. And in this episode, we'll be talking to Nick Owen, the chair of Deloitte UK, and we'll be asking him about post-pandemic professional work and the challenges and opportunities he sees going forward. Laura, if you remember, we got the idea for this podcast last spring as a kind of lockdown project. Back then, I don't think either of us were really thinking much about how our world would be in a year's time. No, I mean, everyone, we were so focused on surviving the immediate crisis, it was impossible to engage in any kind of long-term visioning. Yeah, I agree. And it's funny because a year later, it's still not that easy. But I'm sensing a pretty strong desire for some degree of clarity after so much ambiguity over the last year. Yeah, absolutely. And before the pandemic, people were always asking me to speak about the future of professional service firms. And I was always cautious about accepting invitations to give keynote speeches where I was expected to make a lot of predictions. I just don't think it's enough to speculate in a waffly way in those kinds of environments. Mm. But I think now nobody really knows what lies ahead. In fact, you know, you could say that we're in for a long period of disequilibrium, lots of change and instability before we find a new stability. And uh, I guess we can't all just sit around waiting for the future to happen to us. Absolutely. Um, But I've spent a lot of time this past year thinking and writing about what we can know with certainty about professional organisations. And also, what are the eternal truths and what kind of new truths might be emerging? And also what kind of uncertainties we're going to need to learn to live with and what that means for professionals and the organisations they work within. So what's the answer to that? What is going to be different when people really return to work, when professionals return to work? I guess even the way I phrase that question is grounded in, you could say, in old style thinking. Professionals haven't stopped working this past year and some of them will have nowhere to return to but they're still going to need to keep on working. It's almost like we need a new language to talk about what's going on here. Yeah, I think the changes to professional work are going to be fundamental. And I'm encouraging the firms I advise to think beyond the short term and obvious challenges of hybrid working. I mean, we can all have some sense of that. And they're important and they need to be addressed. But there's so much more to consider. And I believe the unintended consequences of hybrid working are going to shake the foundations of so much that we take for granted about professional work, whether it's in terms of knowledge, of governance, even identity. Hybrid working is going to present some really significant challenges, but it also creates a space for tremendous opportunities. But the truth is, no one really knows what's going to happen because we're all going to have to invent this new reality together. Yes, I think that's right. I think there's going to be a tremendous amount of change in anybody who believes that they have all the answers and they know exactly how this is going to change. I think is definitely indulging in what you would term speculative waffle, uh, Laura. And there's going to be some professional firms who will be leading this change and there's others who are going to be followers And then there's going to be a third category who are just going to fall by the wayside because of the pace of change and they just won't be able to keep up. But ultimately, I believe a lot of very good things are going to come out of this. Yeah, David, but you are an eternal optimist. I am. And one day I'll be proved right, I believe. So anyway, for now... Why don't we hear from Nick Owen, the chair of Deloitte, because we know that Deloitte would certainly want to be one of the leaders in this. 
So good morning, Nick. Great pleasure to have you with us today. I'd like to kick off with a question about the future. And we've all been through this tough year, but looking to the future, what positives do you see that you've taken from the last year and how do you see those being carried forward? Great. Well, lovely to be with you today. Really interesting question. And I'm sure lots of leaders spend quite a lot of time sort of thinking about this exact topic. I think the experience for us has been one overall of appreciating the positivity we have in terms of the resilience of our business model and also the adaptability of our business model and our people. And I think that's probably the same for professional services firms broadly across the world. And I think it's very hard to generalize because I think everyone's experience has been so very different depending upon their organizations. And indeed, even within one organization, the expression I always use internally is we're all surviving the same storm, but we're traveling in very different boats. The biggest one that we've seen in our surveys is not having to commute. Uh, I think people have enjoyed not having time that is sort of wasted and has made them more productive. But again, there's as many people who found that a positive release as those who found it as a negative and have ended up just working longer and day bleeds tonight and, and work bleeds into home time. So, One of the things I'm interested about is the implications for culture. And you know, particularly going forward, a lot of people are concerned about how do you actually maintain or build a culture where people are working in a hybrid way. But I suppose in terms of the positives now, do you think this collective experience of crisis has created some kind of cultural cohesion within the firm? Or do you think the overall effects have been you know, fragmentary precisely because everyone's had such different experiences within Deloitte's? Again, I think another positive for us and probably for many of our clients has been certainly in the UK from sort of mid-March last year and, and we knew this was upon us and it reflected what our experience had been in other parts of the world in the months leading up to that. The extent to which our leadership, and I don't just mean the very senior people in our organisation, I mean it's all people leaders at whatever level they are, really started to lean into the need to communicate and be much more in touch with their people. And I think it's flattened organisations quite dramatically, both in our sector and in our clients' uh, environments. And so that has been a huge positive in terms of the communication and heart, more heartfelt communication, I suspect, and genuine understanding of what you know, focusing on their people meant. Yeah, I think for professional services business, we've always known that one of our biggest assets is our people. But I think, you know, really... For Deloitte, it was the number one priority as we went into this crisis around the world, which is, yeah, how do we make sure that we are really focused on the well-being, both physically and mentally, of our people? So that's changed our communication, and that has, I think, changed the sort of the way we reinforce culture. But I think one of the things we're all a bit nervous about coming out of this is professional services firms have got that legacy of uh, how people are trained and developed. And, and a lot happens by professional osmosis, I think, in the office environment. You know, I think some of the biggest lessons I learned on how to deal with complex situations were observing other people doing it, not reading it in a textbook or online or being taught it. So it's those parts of cultural assimilation and reinforcement, I think, are much more difficult for people joining the organisation new or as you evolve it. One of the things I was thinking about, Nick, was the impact on different generations. So there's some belief that a lot of this sort of online-related anxiety is really just something that the older folks are worried about, like you and me, and that younger people are, are much more comfortable operating in a wholly online environment. And I was just thinking, within an apprenticeship-based model, is the problem really 
about juniors learning from seniors, or is it more that the seniors don't know how to teach the juniors in an online environment? Have you seen any difference there? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question, Laura, and I think it's got a number of different facets to it that are perhaps worth unpicking. Uh, you know, if I look at our business, you know, which is uh, you know, has its foundations, obviously, as a big four accounting firm, we have big chunks of our people in audit, tax, uh, corporate finance, but we have a growing group of people who work in cyber, in consulting, you know, IT systems implementations, et cetera, et cetera, a vast array of different skills and capabilities. And I think depending on where you were in that business, the amount that the elder generation taught the younger generation and the amount the younger generation taught the older generation was shifting anyway. So I think that's an ongoing thing that is probably going through most businesses at the moment. And therefore the need for better cohesion between the demographics is important. But I think you then also raise a preferred ways of working and skills. And I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, I do a lot with boardrooms in the UK. And I think most of the boardrooms that I speak to would say they're looking forward to getting back to face-to-face meetings. There's a lot of things you can't do on Zoom. And they use that word can't do, which I think that group of people probably find it harder to do. But I, I noticed with some other boards, actually, they they're much more forgiving of the different environment and say, actually, there's some things that are better about this way of doing things. There's certain things around how you manage a meeting that can be more effective done on Zoom. And I certainly think intergenerationally, you you have got a group of people who are, have perhaps spent most of their lives forming, storming and norming the teams that they work in by having them together. And they find it quite hard when they're not together. Uh, I think there's another generation who actually make friends, build social cohesion you know, online, and they find it much easier to do so. And they will find adapting to the new tools and, and the hybrid way of working to some extent, you know, from a technology point of view, they'll find that easier. Nick, how do you see your own leadership style kind of evolving in that? I guess it's still very uncertain future. I mean, in a sense, you've got to prepare people for, for any future. Yes, and I think that in itself is probably a really positive thing to take. Again, I don't think necessarily people would focus on that, but... I think focusing on individuals' resilience and focusing on how they become more open to being highly adaptable, more flexible, more accommodating of different ways of growing personally. Yeah, I think that's going to be really important. So I think, you know, personal resilience has become a really important topic for us as a business over many years. I mean, I'm, I'm, but I'm just thinking how much this pandemic has accelerated things. I mean, we had mental health champions and a mental health network in our organisation probably three or four years ago, maybe a bit longer, in fact. So we've been focusing on this area, but we are, we have definitely dialed it up to a new level as we're expecting it to be a much more important topic over the next two or three years. So would it be fair to say then that you become more people orientated? You would probably say, well, yeah, we've always been people orientated, but it sounds like it's even more. I mean, you're sort of doubling down on that. Yes, I think you capture it well. I mean, I think we would always say we've been a people-centric organisation, but how you have to deal with those people uh, and how you deal with colleagues in an environment where it's much more challenging, you know, the, the environment they come to work in, they are, they sort of arrive in the workplace, you know, whether it's an online workplace or a physical workplace, you know, they arrive in a different state because of what's going on in their personal lives. It's a massive change. And I think we've really probably spent much more time thinking about individuals' context for what they then bring with themselves to work. That's probably changed much more. And just going back to that question of cultural cohesion, do you see that in this hybrid world that it looks like we'll be working in the future, that that is going to be harder to maintain. It's just going to be harder to build up those cultural links, that kind of sense of bonding to the organisation that you might have seen in the past. Yeah, I think we're just going to have to learn to do it in slightly different ways. I mean, I think it will continue to be important, but how you achieve it will be slightly different. 
you know, whereas I think my generation and your generation, David, probably the same in terms of how we, when we first joined firms, what the whole joining experience was like. Lots of people joining at the same time. They all turn up in a building together. They're all taken through a shared experience and that's what causes their bond. But, you know, I've got next door, I've got my second daughter, joined a new firm after graduating last summer, you know, has been to the office once in, uh, in eight months. She's quite looking forward to uh, you know, June the 21st or whenever it is in the UK that uh, that'll change again. But again, it's, it's a, just such a different experience today than it was uh, you know, even two or three years ago for these firms. So, Nick, one of the things I'm always interested in is how you take, how professional firms take a, a group of young, inexperienced and frankly ignorant graduates and very quickly turn them into something that can be legitimately billed out for large amounts of money to clients. And obviously, it's partly what you teach them, the explicit knowledge, that it's partly what they can pick up on the implicit knowledge. But there's also something more about the identity work they have to go through and how they learn to present themselves as professionals, how they almost physically embody professionalism in terms of how they dress, how they move, how they conduct themselves, and how they feel about themselves, how, you know, by going into a massive, impressive building in the centre of a capital city, they know they must be special because they work in a special building. All of that, though, gets swept away in the online environment. How are you going to be helping young people come to really believe that they're worth the fees you charge them out at when they're sitting at home in, a, in their parents' house in their upstairs bedroom in their in their pajamas <laughs> uh, yeah i think you ask it in a particularly provoking and challenging way which is uh, which is good but i think you raise a really good point which is how do you build professionals uh, effectively and how do you take you know very capable well-educated socially well-adapted individuals coming out of further education or from school as as apprenticeship hires and how do we do our bit to add value to the proposition of that individual? Because I think that's what, it, what we're about, is, is really building people's careers and building people's talents. And also identity, though, Nick. I know exactly what you mean. So it's partly about the sort of technical knowledge that they gain, but it's also about their social capital, their relationship capital, and their connections and connectivity with others. All is part of parcel what makes them more valuable. And a lot of that is about what they do together with others in the organisation and with other clients. So... I think it would be very hard if you were to say you need to run this professional services firm forever without any offices and with all your people at home and without clients who want the people to ever go to their offices to work at their client site. I think it would be enormously different and enormously challenging for all of our organisations. And so I do believe that we will go back to a hybrid model. I don't think we'll ever flip back to where it was before. But it may not go anywhere near the full extent of what is possible from a remote working perspective, because I think there's so many important parts that come through the relationship set that people build and what they learn from others, both formally and informally through watching them, as we, we touched on earlier in the interview. But also, I think the, the social capital that they build and the relationship capital that they build with other clients and other people and other professionals is so enormous from that, which is much harder to do online. But I don't think it's important. I think people of my generation think it's hard to do online. But I suspect, as we talked earlier, there's many other people who will find it much easier to do that online. So I, I do think that but the same building blocks are there, Laura, to your point. How do you make individuals more valuable to their clients? It's because of the skills, soft and hard, that you equip them with whilst they're developing with you, I think. And what do you, we've been talking a bit about what your organisation and what your people are going to be, how they're going to be wanting to work going forward. 
In terms of your clients, I mean, professional firms such as yours have always been able, in a sense, to kind of defray some of their estate costs by the fact that a lot of the time, a lot of your professionals are going to be based physically based at the client's site. How are you finding that? Are they starting to say to you, you know, thanks, you did that audit without sitting in our offices last year, don't bother coming back? Is there any evidence of that happening? As you say, many of our people spend most of their time at their client site, and we don't know whether our clients will want people to attend to the client site or not. You know, we've invested in new buildings over the last few years, considerable sums of money, but they don't accommodate all of our people. They are there to provide space for some of the time, and the sort of space they provide are no longer sort of rows of desks, but their collaboration spaces, very flexible spaces, team rooms, et cetera, et cetera. And we've already found over the last two or three years, uh, I think many clients saying, you know, when it comes to having a collaborative team working on a big agile project, actually you've got better space than we've got to co-locate that team. So can we co-locate them in your office? So you're right, there's going to be some challenges for us because I don't think we've designed our offices necessarily to start doing all joint work at our site rather than the client site. But our historic... Um, predisposition to working on clients that I think is is much more about in building relationship capital and insight and familiarity with a client and its problems and its context. It's much easier to do that if you're with the client. So that's always been our preferred way is to have our people on our client's site. That may change if the client says, well, actually, I don't feel I need you on my site anymore. And I think there will be some services where people said, actually, it worked okay. You didn't need to come on. We didn't need to have a room for you to be in or whatever. I think there'll be other services where people say, look, it worked, but it wasn't ideal. We'd much rather build a team momentum by having a bit more time together. Now, again, that doesn't necessarily have to be five days a week or six days a week. And I suppose there would be an extra level of unpredictability that some of your clients will want to work one way, some of your clients will want to work another way. And if, let's say, with an audit client where you have the same team going back each year in progressively senior capacities, if you start working with one client who doesn't want you on site, you will have a very different process of training from someone else who's stuck with a client who does want you on site. And you'll have to try and find a way of evening that out. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, I, and I think it will be everything between the two extremes. I'm sure there will be some clients who will probably have an internal philosophy of wanting most of their people back because that's the way they like to work. And I think, therefore, they will probably similarly want to have their advisors come back into their offices. There'll be some that are working the other extreme where they're really minimising what they want people to come into the office for, and they will probably then mirror that in how they expect their professionals to work with them and everything in between. So I, I do think it's going to be a really fascinating area, though, because there isn't going to be one size fits all. It's going to be very, very nuanced. And what that means then for the development of people, you know, the development of teams, you know, we spend a lot of time. I'm not sure what a good analogy is, and I'm not particularly fond of sports analogies, but it's, it would be a bit like running a football team, men's or women's, where every Saturday you, know, you you turn out a team but you can pick from any player in the league. That, that's what our teams are like. They come together, they're together for you know sometimes as short as two to four weeks, sometimes for two years, but they come together and they are the tightest bonded team they are. And then when they go to another client, they have to you know, fit with that other client and often with different team members as well. But Nick, that doesn't happen by itself, does it? Because you need to have effective leadership to make that happen, to bring that together. So what does all this mean for the type of leaders you're looking for in the future and how you develop them? I think the types of leaders we will have will, will need to focus very much on much more empathetic skills, much stronger communication skills, much stronger collaboration skills, much more flexible ways of thinking about how to do things. Yeah, you know, I was amazed within the first few weeks of the UK lockdown, we had 
tools on our machines for how to run you know, better collaborative meetings, how to do presentations, how to manage sales processes all in an all online environment. But you have to be much more flexible about the different ways of doing it. It's not either or. I think that's going to be the challenge for our leaders is having to adapt and flex for different ways of working. But I think also there's going to be some advantages from it because I think you know, we strive, I think, to be more inclusive as organizations always. You know, and the only way really to promote the diversity we all want in our organizations is to be much more inclusive of that diversity. And you know, that, that means you can't have too rigid a way of thinking about the ways of working because it's often the ways of working that, that aren't are inclusive. And if I may, I'd just ask you one final question, Nick. You've spoken in general terms about leaders. Can you, in conclusion, speak about yourself personally as a leader? How has this last year changed you as a leader? What surprised you about yourself, that good or bad, <laughs> that you can take into to your role as leader going forward? Because each one of us has been profoundly challenged in very different ways and I'm curious in about how we're starting to take stock of our experiences and how that's going to change us going forward. I think the single and most obvious way that it's changed all people that lead is I think they've been so much more cognizant and dialed into what is the context for the person I'm working with on this project or I've got in this team or I'm speaking to about this topic today. I think we always understood they brought themselves to work, but actually thinking about where they left, if you like, when they brought themselves to work, I think has been a much more profound thought for most people as they talk about their teams and the people they lead. Really understanding that context in much more detail. And, and in some ways it's easier because you get to look into everyone's house and, uh, and everyone's room and that's both a good and a bad thing, I think, for people. But it does help you understand a little bit more about where they've left to join you at work and what their personal context is. And, and it does allow you then to explore different areas with them. And I think that has been a massive difference for most people leading in professional services. Oh, that's really interesting because I often think of professionalism as like a mask that we put on to reassure our clients and to impress our colleagues. And over the last year, I think most of us have had that mask ripped off <laughs> sometimes quite painfully, but good comes from that, you're saying? Well, I hope so. And and I also think, you know, one of the big challenges for our industry, but for all businesses at the moment is, uh, you know, the massive opportunity stroke threat, depending upon your, your orientation to it, of technological change. And I think the thing for me about technological change, and we, we wrote a lot about this a couple of years ago, is is how to retain the humanity of organisations when there's a lot of tech. How do you stop personalised becoming confused with personal? And this last year has brought the humanity back to lots of people about their organisations and the people they work with, both inside and outside their own organisations. I often say to boards, I think you know people were thoroughly on the ESG journey this time last year. I think they sort of understood what E was, particularly the climate elements of E, and I think they understood what the G was. I think they were a little unsure about what S might have meant, and I think they're much, much clearer on that now, both as it relates to their own people and the people in the customers that they deal with and the supply chains that they deal with, but also their own context in terms of where their businesses operate and the communities in which they're based. I think that's a great place to end, Nick. Thank you very much indeed. You've been a great guest. So, David, what struck you most about that discussion? Well, there was some of what Nick was talking about was fairly generic in its approach. And, and I think that's the problem with this topic, because we're in such uncharted 
territories. When he said some of our audit clients will want us back in their offices as before, and some will expect us to continue to work remotely, and some will want a bit of both, I was thinking, well, how can you plan anything when there's so much uncertainty about that? You just don't know what clients are ultimately going to want. Yeah, I mean, because professional firms are so dependent on the choices their clients must make about how to work in future. But so many clients are confused about their choices and they're looking to firms like Deloitte's to advise them what to do. And Deloitte's has to have an answer for their clients so they can work out what the answer is for themselves. I I think that's right. And what, what resonated most powerfully with me was when he said, now with working from home, we're seeing people in all of their context. Before, we never really thought about what people left behind when they brought themselves to work. And I thought that was a really powerful point. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a huge shift because, of course, no one ever really leaves all that behind when they come to work. They just pretend that they do. Yes, and uh, I, I guess they put on their professional mask. And the key challenge now is for leaders to learn to see their people as individuals, not simply units in the machine. I've always believed that's true. Well, I guess Nick would say that Deloitte's has always cared about its people. Uh, But since the pandemic, they're seeing what's going on behind these professional masks. Yeah, it's really interesting. Pre-pandemic, I suppose so much was said about AI and the dehumanising nature of tech and so on. But in the past year, in some ways, and this is perhaps a surprising way, tech has had the opposite effect. Yeah, tech's actually revealed the humanity and the vulnerability of professionals once the professional arm has been stripped away. I mean, that's what happens on a Zoom call, and it's really weird. But what's interesting to me is that armour was also useful because learning to wear the professional armour was an integral part of being a professional. It was never put to you in those terms, but it was understood. That's how you become a successful professional. Yeah, I mean, there's always the joke about, you know, lawyers and their highly polished black leather shoes. But in reality, all tribes, all occupations have a common understanding about how they look and behave as well as where they congregate. It gives them a sense of cohesiveness and it gives the individual the confidence of knowing they belong. So professional firms have to work out how to teach their young people how to believe in themselves and value themselves and to know that they belong to something. The challenge now is for the firms to work out how to communicate a sense of self to professionals when they can't simply fall back on old-style solutions, the old-style solutions of offering them a salary to buy a good suit and, and an impressive office to commute to. Yeah, those offices which some people seem quite eager to abandon, although there's an interesting split of opinion on that, I think, at the moment, They were in some ways, I think, deliberately designed to intimidate, but they also served a really important purpose. When you walked in there, you could think, I'm part of this. I know what this means. And in many ways, I hope I can live up to this. There's high expectations here. When you went home to your friends and your family, you could think, I'm a somebody. So the buildings help build professionals in security, but it also helped promote their confidence. Yeah, so people have been wittering on about authenticity for ages, but but the reality is to look a client in the eye and say, I cost £1,000 an hour, you need to look and behave like someone who seems to be worth £1,000 an hour. And we have a whole set of societal expectations about what someone like that looks like, and it feeds through to client expectations and colleagues, how they view you. And it's about a whole bunch of things and including race and gender and social class. And that has been very exclusionary in the past. 
But all of these other signifiers, how you signal that you belong through your mannerisms, through your voice, by your behaviour, by wearing the same professional armour as your colleagues. Yeah, I think that definitely when I look back at my own career, I can see there's a bit of a sense of theatre in some of that that's quite important to how you see yourself and how you portray yourself. People have talked about that changing, I think, for for quite a long time. But my sense is that maybe something meaningful is possibly just beginning to start to shift because in the pandemic, it became impossible to wear that professional mask all of the time, even for the middle-class, middle-aged male. I mean, that really does take us right back to episode two of the first series when we interviewed my old colleague and friend, Wendy Young. And as people are returning to work, I'm sure they'll be asking, why should I even bother putting on that mask anymore? And perhaps more to the point, why should you make me do that? Yeah, yeah, actually, there was something that Nick said just in passing that I thought might have really helped unlock that. He said, inclusivity requires flexibility. And actually, for me, that was the most important and challenging, and I think in many ways, the most exciting thing that he said, something is definitely shifting in the mindset. Well, that's all for today's episode. Thanks for listening. And thank you again to Nick Owen of Deloitte's. And please remember to subscribe, rate and review Leading Professional People wherever you get your podcasts. We look forward to you joining us next time. Bye.